Welcome to The Classical Mind, a podcast where we explore the Western canon and its great books. We are your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Dr. Junius Johnson. And we're very excited. Today we will be discussing the Iliad by Homer. But before we jump into that, a couple housekeeping things. Uh, today we are joined by our new co-host, uh, Dr. Junius Johnson. Uh, Junius, it's good to see you. It's, it's awesome that you are going to be joining us for, for the future. Um, could you maybe tell listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, I'm a, uh, I'm a theologian and a philosopher and a literary scholar, a musician, um, and an essayist and a story writer. And so I've, I, I backed my way into the classics um, when I was a young man, um, end of high school and coming into college, I was, fell in love with the writings of C.S. Lewis and I was just devouring all I could get my hands on of C.S. Lewis. And, um, you know, there's a lot of really good stuff there, but it is quite a finite amount of reading. Uh, and so I was getting to the point where there wasn't any C.S. Lewis left to read and I was unsure where to go next. And he kept talking about things. Like I remember the professor says, oh, it's all in Plato. And I thought, well, I've never read Plato, you know? And so I thought, I want to see it all. So I'm going to read Plato. So I started reading The Republic because the professor in Narnia had mentioned that it's all in Plato. And and then I started reading other things that um, were in Lewis's footnotes. And that led me to the Aeneid and, and various other sorts of things. And, um, and I got into this conversation by means of that. Um, as I followed that out and pursued my own education, I, I took an undergraduate degree in English literature and continued focusing on specifically the English side of the tradition. And then I went on to graduate studies in theology, philosophy, and medieval vernacular literature. Um, just you know, following this, the string of interests that Lewis either gave me or shared with me when I came into my reading of him. Um, so I have I have taught in the past. I taught at Yale at the Divinity School. I taught in the Great Books Program at Baylor University, and now I am independent and do a lot of teaching through Junius Johnson Academics online, and also just a lot of writing um, essays, blog posts, and that sort of thing. Excellent. Well, like I said, we're very excited to have you uh, join us, and and I know that this is going to be a super fun discussion, in particular with the Iliad. I mean, it's such a good book. I did want to just go over with listeners real quick. So you may have seen the newsletter announcement that we put out this week, which is that we had to kind of shuffle the books around just due to some some external circumstances. So the Iliad is what we're discussing in this episode, and we will do the Brothers Karamazov as our final episode for the season which will come out in August. And of course, also something to look out for is that we are going to be choosing uh, the next slate of books for the next season uh, soon. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Um, also wanted to say that, you know, we really appreciate the contributions that Dr. Jared Henderson made to the show, um, but he has decided to kind of move on. We've decided that that would be the best way forward. Um, and so he continues to do his work at his YouTube channel, uh, Jared Henderson. So let's talk about the Iliad. Let's dive in. Yeah. Junius, what's your background with the text? This is this is one of those texts that I came to as I was kind of plowing through stuff on my own in college. So this was, you know, late nights in the library uh, reading this um, by myself. And, you know, one of the things that's funny about this text is um, I inadvertently, I think, found myself in the same position that one of the original listeners to the poem would have been in, which is that you come to it knowing all this stuff about the Trojan War and about how things are meant to go. And so I, I picked up the Iliad in order to read about the Trojan horse and the fall of the city and Achilles getting, you know, shot in the, in the heel and all these other sorts of things. And 
um, when I got to the end of the I got to the end of the book and none of those things happened, I was absolutely shocked. I was just like, what is going on here? If it's not here, where is it? Where do I find it? Yeah, it is interesting. You don't really we don't really see the beginning or the end here. Yeah. I mean, we don't see it's not like the movie Troy. Uh, in fact, it's very <laughs> unlike the movie Troy. <laughs> That's, That's interesting. Well, my so I read this in high school. Um, I as a senior, I believe, uh, is when we read it, and remember enjoying it. Remember being very astonished at just the kind of gruesome violence of the text, mm. um, having not read it before and and knowing the stories. But you know, I just just how graphic it can be. I, I remember being not put off by it, but definitely a caught off guard. I guess was the best mm. way to say it. Um, but since then, have read it a number of times, have taught through it once or twice. And so I really, really do and have grown to enjoy it, though. I, I will say I probably like the Odyssey a little bit better, but we'll talk about that in a second. Um, so, yes. So uh, speaking of uh, of text, though, what translation do you go to? Because there are a couple different translations out there. So which, what do you usually use and, and what did you use as we, you were preparing for today? I, I thought I usually used the Fitzgerald, which I know is what I use for the Odyssey and the Aeneid. Um, and yet when I went to my bookshelf, I don't own a copy of the Fitzgerald. <laughs> um, and so I have a, I have a Fagels here, the, the large, the deluxe edition Fagels. As I went through it, all of my markings are in this edition. So turns out I actually use the Fagels as my main one. And that's the one I used. And that's what I'll be looking at today. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, we had sort of a reversal because... <laughs> You had told me that you like the Fitzgerald, and I said, "Oh, I like Fagels." And then when I went to go find Fagels on my shelf, I don't know where it is. I know it's in this house somewhere, but I, I can't find it. And um, so anyway, so I had to go to Barnes and Noble and buy a new one, um, a new translation. So I got the Peng One, a Classics Edition, uh, that was translated by Ryu R I E U. I'm not really sure how to pronounce the last name, but um, anyways, I, I I do I did like it uh, in terms of of, of readability. It, he does a good job of marking the. Um, marking the sections kind of let you know what's going on. So it makes it very easy to navigate. But um, yeah, so normally I read fables, but I, <laughs> I can't find it. It's somewhere in my house. So now I, we were talking about this beforehand, but when I went to Barnes and Noble, I was a little disappointed because I wanted to get fables, but they mm -hmm. only had two translations of the Iliad, but they had like 10 translations of the Odyssey. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is something that is really, this relates to what you were saying a moment ago about how you're, you're an Odyssey guy, uh, and this is kind of a question that you should ask great books people is, so are you an Iliad guy or an Odyssey guy? And, and uh, you're an Odyssey guy. I'm an Iliad guy. I, I like the Iliad better, uh, much better, in fact, than the Odyssey. Um, but in our day and age, the Odyssey has become the, the one that is looked to as the um, text. I was very interested to hear that you were assigned the Iliad in high school. So were you assigned both the Iliad and the Odyssey in high school? Yep. That's fantastic. I mean, normally you you have to pick one or the other, and if you're going to pick, you're going to choose the Odyssey, because the Odyssey has such you know I mean the the themes of journeying home are even more universal than the themes of war and anger and rage and that sort of a thing. But um, you know throughout the ages, and, and Wesley Callahan is great on this. The Iliad has more often than the Odyssey been the more popular of the text, and we do know that in ancient Greece the Iliad was considered the greater work. In fact, one of the early literary critics, a uh, guy called Longinus, who wrote in the, the waning of the Hellenistic period, um, as he wrote about them, he writes about how the Iliad was written by young Homer, who was in the, the, the height of his powers, and the Odyssey was written by old Homer, 
whose poetic powers have begun to wane, and he actually called it decadent. But then he goes on to say, but you know, decadent Homer is still Homer, and so it's still better than anybody else. <laughs> so, so yeah, right, right there, there it is. And I, I think that's probably, you know, that's what underlies your experience at Barnes and Noble is the demand for the Odyssey is very high, and the demand for the Iliad is much less so. Mm, mm hmm. Mm hmm. I could definitely see that. Very interesting. I'll have to share my theory at some point. Well, I'll, I'll give my theory a little bit, which is that the Gospel of Mark is based on the Odyssey. Mm. But that's a different. We'll we'll do that in another episode. We'll get into that's that. That's a special more. episode right there. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, um, so let's just begin. I mean, I think most people will be familiar with the Iliad's kind of broad picture that it paints. But just in case maybe someone's not super familiar with the background of the story, we're kind of we kind of open up in the middle of a conflict, mm -hmm. right? It's this conflict between the Trojans and the Greeks, and the conflict is over a woman, supposedly. Yeah, and and it's been going on for like nine years. When we when we yeah. come to it, right? it's, <laughs> yeah. So the, you know the story goes that the Trojan War is because Helen stole Paris from Menelaus, and that was the Greeks are going to get Helen back. Um, and you made reference to the the Hollywood movie Troy, which. Um, places the thesis that actually it was just you know, Agamemnon grabbing for absolute authority and Helen was an excuse to do that. But in the tradition, it, it's it's really not that, like that's not really the cause of it. Um, you, could you trace it back to um, this whole thing began because at Achilles' parents' wedding, the Olympian gods did not invite the goddess Eris, Strife, to the wedding because she's a terrible wedding guest. Right. She shows up that. and she does her name. She causes strife everywhere. And so if you've ever been to a wedding where that one uncle gets drunk and makes a big scene, that's heiress right there. She don't put her on the guest list. So they left her off the guest list. But uh, it's like a fairy tale. Right. I mean, you don't invite the evil queen. You don't invite Maleficent to the kids christening. But then because you didn't invite Maleficent, she shows up anyway and she brings a curse. And similar thing here. Eris thought I'll get them. And so Eris's end game was the Trojan War. And in order to get to the Trojan War, she sets up what's come to be known as the Judgment of Paris, where she rolls an apple saying to the fairest, to the feet of three goddesses, and then they fight over it, and so Paris is set up to choose it. So then Paris makes his choice of Aphrodite because Aphrodite promises him love over the other choice of power and wealth. So Paris chooses love, and then that gets fulfilled when he lays eyes on Helen, who's the most beautiful woman in the world. Aphrodite feels that she has to offer him the most beautiful woman in the world in order to recompense him for choosing her in this contest. And Eris then says, I got you. That's what I wanted. And so this whole thing, you know, we see Zeus's machinations throughout the text, but the whole text is set up by the machinations of the goddess Eris, against whom the Olympian gods are remarkably impotent. They can do nothing. And so what you get as we go through the the work is that the the Trojan War is almost a proxy war between the gods, right? Where the you know you've got you've got Aphrodite on the one side and she's obviously pro Trojan because Paris has chosen her and then Hera and Athena are for the Greeks and all the other gods have to kind of fall in one side or the other. Um Apollo helps out Aphrodite and Ares comes and fights for the Trojans at one point, but then you've got Poseidon helping the Greeks. And so it's, it's a whole mess. It's, but it really is like a big conflict. And so whatever is happening between these two countries, 
there's also this divine conflict behind the scenes. So it makes right. it makes it very complicated and uh, extra violent. It's really true. It reminds me in a lot of ways of, of the Star Wars saga, because as that has developed, it turns out that all nine movies are about Skywalkers. Uh, and it's it's this whole big saga is about this one little family. And that's kind of what we see here because it was the marriage of Achilles' parents where all of this got started. And then all of Zeus's actions in this text and his, the way that he is giving the, raising the Trojans up and trying to forbid the other gods from involved, getting involved and whatnot, it's all to fulfill a promise that he made to Achilles' mom. And yep. so the whole thing really turns around this one family unit and, and and what Zeus is going to do, what all the gods are going to do with regard to this family unit. Yes. Yeah, so and, and, and sometimes you even get weird kind of crossovers like, um, I mean, you know, Thetis is always trying to, to influence Zeus, mm -hmm. but then sometimes Zeus kind of goes one way or the other. He's kind of in the middle and so they're trying to tip the balance. In fact, maybe this is maybe this kind of should just lead into the second part of our conversation, which is to talk a little bit about how Zeus relates to the other gods. I mean, we think of a pantheon, and in the Greco-Roman world, Zeus is is usually at the top of that pantheon, but he's very suggestible <laughs> and manipulable, right? Yes, I mean, it's, yes. It's not, you, you see people doing this, and in this text, Hera really takes him for a ride at one point. Um, there's a there's a passage that I really love, and this is from Book Eight, um, and it's right at the beginning of Book Eight when uh, the Zeus is, and the Olympians are all gathered together in in council, um, and he's warning them at the very beginning. He says, "Hear me, all you gods and all goddesses too, as I proclaim what the heart inside me urges. Let no lovely goddess and no god either try to fight against my strict decree." I'll submit to it now so all the more quickly I can bring this violent business to an end. Any god I catch breaking ranks with us, eager to go and help the Trojans or Achaeans, back he comes to Olympus, whipped by the lightning, eternally disgraced. Right. And and, he, and so this is kind of interesting because there is this question of when you have a pantheon of gods, how is the power distributed among them? And, you know, we, we were, we were aware of the notion of the big three and the Olympian pantheon, Zeus and Poseidon and Hades, and how they are set apart from many of the other gods in power. Hera, who is the mother of the gods, who's more powerful. Aphrodite, who is older even than Hera and Zeus, right? She's Zeus's aunt, um, who has a strange relationship to all of them and whatnot. But you can, there's different ways to parse out how much power each of them has. So Zeus finishes this speech by making this claim, starting in line 20 of the Fagel's translation, um, that is a, it's a remarkable claim. He says, come, try me immortals so all of you can learn. Hang a great golden cable down from the heavens. Lay hold of it, all you gods, all goddesses too. You can never drag me down from sky to earth. Not Zeus, the highest, mightiest king of kings. Not even if you work yourselves to death. But whenever I'd set my mind to drag you up in deadly earnest, I'd hoist you all with ease you and the earth, you and the sea all together. Then loop that golden cable around a horn of Olympus, bind it fast and leave the whole world dangling in midair. That is how far I tower over the gods. I tower over men. Strong. 
that's 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 amazing, right? And one of the questions I always have about this is, is it true? <laughs> right. Right. I it's it's interesting because as even as you were reading, I was thinking, I mean, on the one hand, Zeus is very strong. I mean, he was able to kill his father and you know all, that that whole story, and he he is able to wrangle the gods at times. But he also seems it, it, those seem to be claims of brute force. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess he calls himself counselor, but there are times certainly where he is taken. He's kind of played by like Hera at one point really plays him, and so he uh, yeah it's like if it's not a if it's not a contest of brute force i sort of question i've always sort of questioned how effective zeus might be and he you know his most powerful weapon is the lightning bolt which hephaestus makes it's not even you know That's true. it's not an inherent power to zeus right he has a dude who makes it for him under mount etna um this is a, a there's also this other aspect of it that's really important and that's the fates and what do you fit the fates into this? Because the I, I would say the most persistent question of Greek theology is, is Zeus the lord of the fates or are the fates the lord of Zeus? Or you could almost cast it in a in the same vein that Plato cast the question of the good and the euthyphro, which is, is fate the way that it is because Zeus decrees it? Or does Zeus decree what he does because fate says that he must? Mm. Um and the two oldest texts of Greek theology we have, which are the Iliad and then Hesiod's uh, works and days in Theogony, who's a roughly contemporary poet to Homer, we think, um, take different sides on this issue. Whereas um, Homer here, we see Zeus struggling with fate, but always submitting to it. And how he says that he didn't want to see the things happen to Hercules that had to happen to him, his beloved son, but he had to because fate decrees it. Same thing here with Sarpedon. Um, and then you get the sense that fate is stronger than Zeus and that Zeus must obey fate. Over in the over in the Hesiod, you get the notion that Zeus is actually stronger than fate and that fate is just a way of talking about the will of Zeus. I think that central conflict in Greek theology is one that um, never really fully gets worked out. And even, even in Homer, who seems to be on one side of it, it's not entirely clear and he's playing with that notion. And so this idea of Zeus being all powerful that he can kind of, his will can you know, plow through everything and do what it wants to do. That's undercut in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this is a problem? I mean, like in Christian theology, we do talk some about how circumstance and human will can relate to a sort of divine, supreme, sovereign God. But is this a condition that's really specific to pagan theology, just given the kind of kind of chaos that exists between in the, within the pantheon. I mean, there's always this kind of power struggle going on, it feels like. And so you either have to have a really strong Zeus who can subjugate everything, or there has to be something kind of outside of Zeus to, to make things interesting or keep things interesting. I think that's, I think that's probably right. You know, because the notion is if you've got a bunch of gods, either one of them is clearly the one true God and the others are subordinate to that one. And then you've got the possibility for something like providence and a unifying purposiveness to events, or they're all on a continuum. They're, they're in a competitive relationship with each other. And so to the extent that Poseidon is powerful, Zeus is less powerful, and they're all running interference with each other. And so you wind up with no ability to point to any sort of purposiveness because 
you know, we get these proxy wars of the gods played out in human affairs. And it's like that bit from Shakespeare, uh, I think it's King Lear, right? As flies to the gods, to, to wanton boys, are we to the gods? They kill us for sport. Um, and so I, I feel like a lot of what they're doing with fate here is, well, because it's less narratively interesting for Zeus to be all powerful in a way that would be familiar to the Judeo-Christian tradition, um, then you're going to go for a less powerful Zeus to make space for Hera and Athena and these other cool guys to do their thing. But then in order to restore some semblance of meaning to the movement of history, you're going to have something above Zeus, fate, which is able to see beyond and to, to weave even the workings of the gods into their machinations. Actually, that raises a really interesting question, and I'd be interested to know what you think about this. Should we approach Homer as primarily a theologian or primarily a, a literary work? I mean, I know in the ancient mind, these aren't two really separate things, but, you know, I mean, we're talking about it. It makes the narrative more interesting if there's this kind of divine struggle going on behind the scenes that that brings a kind of meaning to what's going on um, mm -hmm. in the present. So is that, I mean, obviously there's some theology that's at play there, but what 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 is Homer first? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I, I, I want to say both. Um, and, and but I think I need to I need to justify that. Um, I'm thinking about it. It's not quite the same as Dante, right? Where Dante's got an, an orthodoxy to theology that um, hymns in what he can do with the Divine Comedy. I don't think he feels it as a constraint because he believes it's true. Um, but nevertheless, there's he doesn't have the type of poetic freedom that I think Homer has more of. Not because Homer takes the gods less seriously than Dante does. I, I very much doubt that that's true, but rather because there's so much less that's known for sure about the gods. And so in that context, as Homer is weaving his, I'm just sort of imagining my Homer now, um, as Homer is weaving his story together with the truths as he believes them to be about the gods, he's coming across some of these questions and asking them. And I think the question of, well, this makes more narrative sense could become a reason for thinking that I bet that's probably what the theological truth of the matter is, mm -hmm. right? There's a sort of aesthetic fit that the good, the true, and the beautiful all run together. And so narrative becomes a means of recognizing what is likely to be true, Plato calls likely stories, mythoi, right? What's likely to be true about the gods. So I think all of these myths, we have to read them in that way of their their allegories about the world but at base what they are is likely stories which means they may not be getting it all exactly right but they're also very similitudinous they are in fact like the way the world is hmm. very interesting yes i think i think that's that's probably the same i would echo the same sentiment there i think because i the difference between literature and theology seems to me to be a modern mm. a modern distinction. And so, yes, but it, it's it is fascinating to think, yes, at the outset of this, I mean, there is a, a mythology that that Homer is playing in, but they there's not like a, a Bible. There's not a Homer already. That's right. <laughs> yeah, Homer becomes the Bible is. for Greek culture, you know. It's <laughs> exactly right. 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 Yes. Yeah. So you're yeah, I think that makes sense. While now, we're on that point, there's something that we should mention before we go on, which is just kind of a contextual thing that it would be good for people to be aware of. I, I didn't know about this until 
um, I was teaching at Baylor and we were doing a, a faculty uh, enrichment on this text. And one of the classics guys was talking to us about it. And he was pointing out that where we situate this text in Greek history places it after a fall. That there was a, there was a past height of glory um, and not, not just the Mycenaean civilization, but a, a broader past glory in the Peloponnesian Peninsula that there's something happened which caused a technological catastrophe and they lost a lot of the knowledge that they had before and they were building their way back up. And in, and in many ways, the Trojan War is a story that's meant to account for, together with the Theban War, two stories that are meant to account for how we wound up where we are now, given where we used to be. And you see this very clearly in Hesiod, who has this narrative of there's this golden age, which is Kronos, the silver age, the Olympian god, the age of heroes, which is what we're reading about here. And the Trojan War, Troy is where all the heroes die. And so after the Trojan War, what we're left with, Hesiod says, is the age of men, where we're mm. too late for glory and all that's left to us is stinking mud. Um, one of the ways you can see this in the text is Homer has no idea what a chariot's for. Right, the guys hop in their chariots and they ride into battle, and then they get off the chariots and they fight on foot, and then they get back on the chariots and ride back to camp. <laughs> That's not what chariots are good for, right? The whole advantage is you stay in the chariot and you fight from there. But he he's riding at a time when they don't have that anymore. They don't have the chariots anymore, and they're having to build their way back up to that. And so there's, there's anachronisms in the text as he's looking back to what is an earlier golden age for him as well. I think there's a lot that can be done with teaching the text that, that brings that to the fore. Mm, mm. I like that. That helps. That that does help contextualize things. Um, so maybe we could talk a little bit, unless there's more that you wanted to say about the relationship between the gods, about Hector and Achilles. And I think we have to ask the question, just like you said, an Iliad Odyssey guy. You know, there's usually two types of people who read the Iliad as well, which is, are you a Hector guy or an Achilles guy? Yeah. I mean, I, th I think you should lead us in on this one because I, I think you've got reasons for your choice and, and my reasons are all bad. Fine, <laughs> fine, fine. Okay, so, you know, I it I can understand why people feel drawn to Achilles. He is an interesting character, but I think in terms of heroes, people who are in this story who you can look up to, I would certainly be a Hector guy. Um, the the He's very noble in the way that he protects his family, protects his home. Um, even, even when he recognizes, I think, that there may be some things on their side that are not the best you know he, he in other words i don't think he's he's ignorant of the fact that that his side has contributed to the problem that is the the trojan war yeah um but he is duty bound and and is willing to go even all the way to his own death for that so yeah. that always i find to be very inspiring and i know we all kind of love a, an underdog and a lost cause you know type thing and hector can certainly feel like that at times because you do feel he, he he is genuinely good but you know he's kind of doomed from the start and so there is certainly that aspect of it as well but i think just in terms of being a, a symbol of virtue i i greatly appreciate hector yeah and and, and you know later literature is going to pick up on this and i don't think it's just because Rome wins out and Rome is going to sort of flip the table and say that, you know, the Trojans are the good side. Um, it's not just for that reason. Um, it's seeing exactly the things you're talking about, that um, Hector is 
um, the complete package, right? Hector is the great warrior, the breaker of horses, but he's also dutiful to his family. He can he can take Paris to task most. He can be Paris's biggest critic, and nevertheless, he's going to stand by him and fight for him, and and that sort of a thing. Uh, and so that is there's a lot to admire there. I, I agree with everything you're saying, and so I'm ashamed to say that I'm on Team Achilles. Um, not because anything you said is wrong uh, or not because I'm not moved by any things that you say, but this is why I had you go first because I, I was on Team Achilles before I read the poem. Um, I, I encountered the Trojan War as the Greeks are the good guys and they win and they beat those Trojans. And uh, so in other words, I came at this from the Greek part of the tradition rather than the Roman part of the tradition. And so Achilles is the greatest warrior there's ever been, you know, everlasting glory and whatnot. And, uh, and and I came to the text, and you know, I, I open it up, and the first thing I see is rage, and I see Achilles acting like a spoiled schoolboy um, because you know I'm going to take my ball and go home. And his his reportment throughout the thing is disappointing, but I'm mesmerized by how much better a warrior he is than everybody else. These are the greatest men that his age could serve up, which is the last of the great ages. There's only, the only way to put him in a more illustrious group would have been to move him back one generation with his father. Because when Nestor makes this claim that, um, you know, when I was a boy, when I was young, I wish you could have seen the guys I fought with. Those guys were real men. You guys are okay. Um, he's not just blowing smoke. He fought with like, Hercules and Theseus and the Argonauts, you know, Orestes, right? I mean, the, the bigger names even than Achilles. But Achilles just, Hector is a mighty, mighty man, and Achilles just blows him away, right? And so I find myself moved by the um, excellence of Achilles' battle prowess, even though I wholeheartedly think that Hector's the better, ma the better man. And it is interesting, I mean... I've always oscillated when I read this, when I read Achilles' story in the Iliad, because on the one hand, he is wronged, mm -hmm. right? Agamemnon really does wrong him. On the other hand, I've always thought his his reaction was maybe a little uh, juvenile, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, the, the kind of sulking and 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 basically being okay with people going out and dying when he could, you know, have made probably a bigger difference in the in the outcomes had he been fighting, has always struck me as selfish. At the same time, I mean, he is fighting for these warlords, and it's kind of, you know, he's been away from home for this long and all this. So it's hard to, it, there's a lot of facts to adjudicate it, to, to kind of blame Achilles or or to come down on him too hard, I think. Um, it is interesting to me, always been interesting too, that Dante puts Hector in limbo with mm -hmm. the noble pagans, but he puts Achilles in the second circle, right? In the circle of lust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, Which, then Odysseus down in the seat, way, way down lower. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But I do think that's interesting because Achilles, I mean, you certainly do get this this feeling that this is a man who in some ways, in in my view, kind of mirrors Zeus. I mean, he mm -hmm. there's this kind of brute force that, yeah. that Achilles brings on the battlefield and, and elsewhere where he just uh, kind of is always asserting himself. Right. The, the the thing that always well, the thing I've always uh, you have, we have to talk about if we're going to talk about Achilles and, and and judging valuing what he the choices he makes we've got to look all the way back to why he does it all in the first place mm, right sure. he was offered the choice you could have a long life 
a quiet life and die surrounded by your grandchildren and great-grandchildren and full of love, but never be heard from again, be unknown. Or you could have a short life, almost the shortest of lives, but you could win a glory that the world will never stop talking about until the end of ages, which at this point, we're in a position to say he has. It's been 3,000 years and we're still talking about Achilles. And, you know, barring uh, some sort of catastrophe that destroys all Western learning, which seems increasingly unlikely, we're never going to stop talking about Achilles. He's gained a glory that will last into the end of the human race. Um, and he and he chooses fame. He chooses that glory. It's, it's worth it to burn brighter for that shorter amount of time uh, and leave behind something that's lasting. Now, we're going to even in the Odyssey, Homer's going to come back around to that and say, what, what do you think, Achilles? Are you happy with your choice? And he's like, nah, but I'd, I'd right. rather, rather, be a, rather be a slave in the world of the living than the king of the, of the, of the damned down here. But, but nevertheless, that's the choice, right? So he's not here for Agamemnon's war. He's not here to, you know, for Menelaus's honor. He's not here to support the Greek cause. Uh, and that's something else we should really talk about is what's the Trojan War really about? Not mm. just how did it start, but what is it really about? He's here to make a name for himself. And if, if he stands by for Agamemnon taking his stuff, which is what this is about, he doesn't care about the girl, except that it's his stuff, right? right. So if Agamemnon can take his stuff, that subjects Achilles to Agamemnon, and now all of his glory transfers over to Agamemnon. And that's why he feels like he can't do it. Now, that's I don't think that, I'm not saying that's not, not a childish reason to do what he does. It is still very childish, I think, in the, in the long run. It's very selfish at any rate. Um, nevertheless, he's got his eyes on that eternal glory prize. Mm -hmm. And what we see in the Odyssey when, when, I mean, there's not a super, in my understanding of it, there's not a super developed view of the afterlife, right? In, mm -hmm. in terms of the Greek theology. And so you do get this kind of shadowy existence in Hades, which is kind of what mm -hmm. Achilles is experiencing when Odysseus uh, encounters him and and, mm -hmm. and has that conversation with him and tries to console him. So you have so uh, the only way to gain immortality is through some sort of great feat of right. on the battlefield here. It's it's sort of it's sort of like uh like we said when I was in college, you know, YOLO was a big phrase, <laughs> you know. It's like you only live once, so you have to make the most out of right now because that's all that you have. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's what the Trojan War provides is it's a stage where the entire world is gathered before the walls of this one city. And it's a, it, it's as if it's like the, it's like the Olympics um, yep. in, in a greater sense, right? Where the entire world gathers together, all the youth of the world gather together and everybody else of not just that time, but of all subsequent times is watching. Here is a place where the least things you can do can echo through eternity. And that's it. Because apart from that, you can expect one generation. Right, you, you've got uh, Neoptolemus is Achilleides, son of Achilles. After that, his son is going to be Neoptolemides, Neop or however you would say it, right? And Achilles' name disappears, and so you've got this one chance to do something that might echo down the ages forever, and it's where you've got to go. Yeah, yeah, and it's behind. It's what's behind, I think, the depiction of all the battles between the heroes. You know, they, mm -hmm. Homer zooms in at times and this hero is fighting this hero. And so there is almost this tournament aspect to it. You know, who, yeah. who can stand out, who can last longer. Honestly, the best analogy I think that 
for, for in the present time, since we don't really line up in big battles like this and fight each other is um, the NBA. I think it presents a fantastic because, you know, they stack teams so that yeah. you get, you know, you have a super team here and a super team there. And so LeBron James goes out on the court against Steph Curry and Draymond Green mm -hmm. is out against Anthony Davis, you know, and we think about this and, and the impact that a player of that magnitude can have like a LeBron James. I mean, you watch him play and you just, I mean, he's well, it's head funny. and shoulders above everybody else. Because where I was going to go with it, I was wondering if you were going to say this, was it's like fantasy football. Right. Well, you like draft this perfect team made up of people from all these different. You've never played together, but man, wouldn't it be great if that team yes. all play together? Uh, that's that's what you have here. It's the ultimate fan Greek fantasy football teams. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I just think there's kind of a showdown aspect yes. to the battles, and then there's a showdown aspect to the NBA. It's like, yeah, you know, the, you 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 tune in for a, a seven game series when it's LeBron James and Steph Curry or, or you know some of these great players, and and that's right. And it's all about yeah. them. You know, because it's not, I mean, it's a team sport, but it's not too, it's not like football where, you know, football, there's 11 people on a side and, you know, if mm -hmm. one, one little thing goes wrong, even the, a great player can't, can't, has a limited impact. But in basketball, it's like one player can make a huge uh, difference. Yeah. So that's exactly kind of, when they're, when they're warming up, you know, it's like, it's like the introduction to the battle, you know, LeBron James is over <laughs> in the warm up circle and he's getting ready to face off against, yeah, I don't know. It's, it always <laughs> makes me think of that, but. The NBA warm-up is, the, is that, that bit in book two where the, you get the mustering of the armies and you're talking yes. about who the heroes are on each side and That's how right. it's going down, calling the game, you know, oh, and LeBron James has had this many. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's another yeah, podcast, it's, it's, but LeBron James is the GOAT. So. Yeah, I'm I, I picking up on that. Let me say this now in in the context of that then, you know, this because a lot of times when you come to these epics and you have these big lists of – not just the heroes, which is plays right into what you were talking about, but even all the different tribes that have shown up to fight and different things. And we're thinking, oh, okay, like, what is this, right? Is this the part where, you know, the comedian's standing up there and he says, anybody from Chicago in the room, you know, <laughs> just kind of get a little, Aah. but, but it's, it really is more than that. And, and I, I missed this for a long time. And I think this speaks, this is something I'm very passionate about right now. This speaks to the um, question of diversity with regard to teaching this text. Um, no one told me to think of it this way, but I got a million tiny, subtle cultural cues to come at the Trojan War and imagine it as simply as essentially being a war of two different peoples who were basically Greek and therefore basically white fighting over a woman. And so for me, there's all the Greeks on the one side and all the Trojans, and they all basically look the same. And they all speak basically, the, they speak the same language, right? They're talking to each other. And so this is kind of an intramural conflict that even though it's being played out in Asia Minor, is really a Peloponnesian Peninsula conflict. Um, Homer goes to great lengths to try to make sure that we don't think of it that way, because it's mm -hmm. not at all what it was, right? This There was no Greece, of course. Talking about the Achaeans, it's this in confederation of warlords, as you described it, proto-city states, and these sorts of things that don't have an identity as a people, but what they are is a representation of Europe. It's like all of Europe. That's why it's a thousand ships. It's every place in Europe sails over here. And then what you have on the Trojan side, all of these tribes are coming from all over Asia Minor and further out past beyond the Balkans. And what you wind up with is Asia. So this is a battle between European culture and Asian culture over who's going to control the Straits of the Bosporus. That is to say, which is going to be the dominant and most powerful civilization in the world. Who's going to get to, when we talk about the tradition the Western tradition, 
who's going to get to control what that tradition is made up of and what text we're reading, right? We don't know all of those Anatolian gods because the Greeks won the Trojan War. If right. they had, we wouldn't know the Olympian gods, right? And so what's really happening here is this battle of cultures of, across two radically different um, race groups that are also radically different linguistic groups. Uh, the, the Trojan language would have been a very different language to the Greek language, and then all the languages represented by the people spoke there, spoken there, uh, who showed up to the, to the walls. So I, I think this is a really important moment in history. I think the Greeks knew it was a really important moment in history, and that's why they keep going back to it and telling the story over again. It makes it even more interesting that the Romans decided to write themselves into the Asian part of the story. Mm -hmm. And, and then, but right at the beginning of doing that, they've got their own Trojan War to deal with, which is the Punic Wars, which is a battle between Europe and Africa. The same conflict, the same type of stakes moved over to the Mediterranean. And so I, I think all of these things are, are things that it's really good to pay attention to when reading and teaching this text. And that makes that material in books two and three a lot more relevant and it puts a new puts a new light on why those are there. This is not just a random list of names because we got to do lip service to people. This is really giving you an important context for what's at stake here. I think one one reason that I've always because I, I, I totally get exactly what you're saying. I reading this the first time you you do get the idea that there are these are two sort of sub Greek cultures. But I I think one of the reasons that I thought that is that the 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 way Homer describes the the worship of the Trojans being directed towards Apollo, mm -hmm. like they have this kind of uh, piety or devotion to Apollo, and mm -hmm. so it, you kind of see them participating in this pantheon. And so the 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 question, I guess, is behind the text whether that would have been is that Homer um, saying, oh, this god that they worship is kind of like our Apollo, like a sort of. Um, uh, equivocation or is it is there a shared pantheon in that region yeah you know it's it's, it's interesting because you do have a lot of the greek gods have kind of equivalents and you could look and say that you know the the hittites maybe who are closer over to where you maybe the children would be they have a god called called apollyonus mm. who is their sun god right and so um it's when you when you read that, it's like, is that is it really Apollo or is it, you know, they're worshiping the guy by their name, whom we know by our name is Apollo. Um, and that becomes interesting, too, because then if you look at someone like Aphrodite, who is, you know, essentially on the Trojan side because she's because of the stuff with Paris. Aphrodite, of course, is one of the oldest goddesses and we've got, she's got strong connections with Astarte and some of the other Middle Eastern goddesses. And so you begin to line up these things a little bit. And I haven't gone all the way down the list to see how much this plays out, but you might be seeing also a conflict of two pantheons that became more integrated after the Trojan War than they were before, right? Maybe Apollo is as integrated into Olympus as he is because of the, the Trojan War. And then you notice Apollo always stands apart a bit in the Olympic pantheon. He's got his oracle and he's doing his own thing. And he'll often reveal the counsel of the gods in ways that maybe Zeus isn't happy with. And so there's just layers and layers to all of this that begin to reveal themselves when we take seriously the fact that these are this is a clash of different cultures and, and different even pantheons. Mm, that's helpful. That is helpful. You see this sometimes in the in the scriptures the old testament scriptures as well this kind of interplay between the canaanites and the in the hebrew religion and how they all come out but yes that, that that makes a lot of sense now 
I wanted to zoom in on one other aspect between the the Hector and Achilles uh, debate, and and talk a little bit about the concept of friendship, mm. because this does seem to be a pretty important theme in the book. I mean, I do see Hector as not just a brother, but in some ways a friend of Paris. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure he would have chosen to hang out with <laughs> Paris, all things being equal, if they hadn't been brothers. But you do see a real friendship there in terms of standing by, supporting, even criticizing. Yeah. And I, I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts are on the Patroclus and Achilles friendship. Obviously important, because when Patroclus is killed is what causes Achilles to jump back in the war. Mm -hmm. But their friendship feels to me a little bit different than what I would see as the friendship between Hector and Paris. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always thought, um, and then so the, the, let's just sort of address the the white elephant, um, the elephant in the room. I should say, not the white elephant. No, no presence. Um, <laughs> still, some scholars will claim that there's a that there's a romantic relationship between Achilles and Patroclus. I've never seen that, and I I think there's a lot to argue against that. And this, we have some very good attestation in the ancient world. Romantic relationships were seen to be antithetical, antithetical to friendly relationships. Um, and so once something crosses over into romance, friendship is sort of out the window. And um, so I don't, I don't want, to, I don't see it in that way. But there is something profoundly different about Achilles' relation to Patroclus than any other two men in the book, uh, and, and especially than, than Hector and, and Paris. And to me, it looks a lot more like a father-son relationship. Um, and I've always understood it in that sense of you know, this is my protege, and I'm, I'm bringing him along to be the, the me of the next generation, even more so than Neoptolemus, who's not even here, <laughs> right? Um, and it's, it's as if he's the chosen successor to Achilles, more so than Achilles' own son. And um, that's, so there's a friendship there because it's not truly his son, it's, it's a protege, but on top of their friendship relationship, there's also that um, sense of guiding and sense of responsibility that, you know, I'm the one who's, uh, he was mine to look out for, and this should not have happened to him on my watch. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think all of that stuff plays into I, that's how kind of how I tend to read that relationship between the two of them, and that that gives it the right amount of poignancy to, in me that I feel Homer's trying to evoke from the way the text is set up. Yeah, it is interesting. Achilles does he certainly grieves the death very viscerally, but then he does blame himself. He even says that in book um, which book is it? Book eighteen, um, I think around line eighty that that I mm -hmm. killed. Patroclus, he says, I've destroyed yeah. Patroclus. And then um, and then he even goes on to basically want to die because mm -hmm. he let his companion be killed when he could have saved him. And then you're, yeah, so I think, I think you are correct. Uh, there is a, a paternal responsibility there that, that is, I think, different than a fraternal responsibility I mean, Hector is kind of Hector's always kind of picking up after Paris. I, you can almost see him roll his eyes at times, you know. Yeah. But here, it's it's this it's this intense kind of caring. Yeah. And when and, and when he mourns him, it's it's a quite, in some places, very beautiful. You know, um, 
the way that he he frames the morning i think is 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 it shows how much he really does care um and it's it's interesting because we haven't seen this side of achilles at all right no i mean it's the there's a there's a sensitivity to him uh that's not puerile that's that's a full-grown mature sensitivity and there's a there's a poetry in him that we haven't seen before and that you wouldn't at least that a modern wouldn't necessarily expect to be found in a, in a man of war like achilles but but i think that the greeks did expect that and we know that other cultures analogous to the greeks like the like the ancient germanic cultures did expect that beowulf has got to be good at playing the harp and singing and not just at slaying monsters right and so this is this is a bit of the i suppose we shouldn't answer the achilles hector question without looking at the tail end of Achilles' trajectory, which is once he's done the thing that is that Zeus has been setting him up for this whole time, right? The entirety of the Iliad is Zeus raising Hector up so that Achilles can seize eternal glory when he kills him. Once he's done that, and it's all denouement as far as fate is concerned from then on out, um, now he must die because he has seized this glory. All of a sudden, he's freed up. It's as if this this thing has been un, unchained within him, and he's free to be more of a man and to be more fully human. And it's his grief and his great love for his friend that brings that out of him. Mm. In fact, at the end of the at the end of the whole work, you see a very human side to Achilles. I mean, certainly this morning of Patroclus is is very human, though it it's um, stands before the sort of inhuman. Uh, violence that Achilles will engage in and and of course then his his treatment of Hector's body and and things like that which are are I think especially to a modern reader a little bit off-putting but but at the end of the book I mean so like you said it doesn't end with the fall of Troy and it doesn't end with the Trojan horse and all that it ends with a with a sort of clandestine meeting between Priam who's the king of of Troy and Achilles where Priam is begging to have the body of Hector returned to him so that they can honor it and give him funeral games and, and, you know, mourn properly. Mm -hmm. And Achilles, you know, I mean, if you like at the very beginning, when you read the book, you, you would never guess Achilles would actually relent right. to this, but he does, he gives the body back. And so there yeah. is a kind of humanizing aspect to this. It ends on a human note. That's right. And and it's there's even a so you know in book one, um, this is around line two forty, um, Athena comes down to talk to Achilles. And it says, uh, you know, Achilles saw her, none of the other fighters, I'm starting in, in Fagos, this is from line two thirty-four, struck with wonder, he spun around, he knew her at once. Pallas Athena, the terrible blazing of those eyes, and his winged words went flying. Why? Why now? Shot of Zeus with the shield of thunder, why come now? To witness the outrage Agamemnon just committed? I tell you this, and so help me, it's the truth. He'll soon pay for his arrogance with his life. Athena's eyes are the key to the gods, right? They're the key to, the, to mm. everything. Her gray eyes clear, the goddess Athena answered, Down from the skies I come to check your rage, if only you will yield. Right. And there's a we could get into the Greek of that and the and the mood and things like this, but what's going on here is there's this this optative, almost potential subjunctive. If only it were possible, 
if there were any way for you to yield, how many new worlds can be opened up, right? There's, there's a lot of things that could happen here if only you will yield. And that's the thing that he won't do. Even in the face of Pallas Athena, he won't give over his rage. But at the end, he does yield to the entreaties of Priam in such a way that the last word, line of the poem is, and so the Trojans buried Hector, breaker of horses. And we end on Hector, breaker of horses. Achilles gives, and gives space at the end of the poem for his foe to get the last word and for his foe to have to be a you know to have his space for his own glory even in what is essentially achilles story i think that's very powerful i think that that's very challenging as well do you think that the reason that he can do this is because he can identify with priam in some ways i mean they have a sort of sweet conversation at the end but but having gone through this with patroclus yeah there is this kind of softening he can identify so in other words you know where we have two very different cultures two different peoples who no doubt some of these conflicts are caused by a kind of unknowing of the other right mm -hmm. there is at this time a common recognition of something shared oh that's beautiful i love that that, that at the end across all cultural differences and all differences of hostility, there's something we can find in common. And that thing, this is so Greek, right? That thing is grief. Oh, right. <laughs> Pain, that's what all humans understand. <laughs> A universal language. Yeah. Because, you know, the, the Greeks are a tragic people. Uh, yeah. They, not just in the tragedies, they're always writing tragedies. Even when it's not tragic plays, it's all about how many mistaken identities, how many prophecies that are deceptive, how many times the gods just aren't there or someone comes a little too late. They really, they really have a strong sense of that. And here it is at the end too, that Achilles at the end, when it's too late to change his course, he sees the pain of a father who's lost a son. And he's like, yeah, that's, ex that's, that's a mirror, right? Priam holds a mirror up to him of what he's his own loss. And that's something he can relent to. That's something he can respond to. Have you ever uh, heard of uh, Theater of War? No. It's an organization. It, it's current, but mm. they believe that the, the the guy that runs it, I forgot his name. I think it's, I forgot. I, I'll butcher it if I try and remember. But he, um, they, he believes that the Greek tragedy was invented as a way of teaching young people in their society to cope with grief and PTSD, basically. Mm. And so his theory is that um, that that those stories that shared grief can be a sort of therapeutic have a therapeutic value. So he performs he organizes performances of Greek tragedies with people who are in prison or or who um, have been to war and have PTSD or something like that. And um, so that idea that the pain kind of speaks even yeah. even reverberating today has something to say to us. I think oh, that's, 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 that, that's Aristotle's idea about it too, right? The catharsis that you you evoke these powerful emotions in order to purge them. Um, there's a story that uh, Douglas Gresham tells about C.S. Lewis that uh, there was a C.S. Lewis and Warney were at a gathering of other men who had served in World War One, um, and so they were. This was I think this was in Lewis's own parlor. They were sitting around and they were you know drinking and smoking and talking and and whatnot, and they never spoke of the war. <clears throat> and then at a certain moment in the evening they all get really quiet 
and no one said anything and they were all kind of lost in their own thoughts and staring into the fire and whatnot. And Gresham was able to tell that they were remembering together. And they never talked about it. They did, not a word was spoken when that moment passed. They went back to talking about other things. But that was the only way that Doug ever saw that those men were able to process, to come close to even talking about the experience of the war, was just silently commuting in their, with their painful memories in the presence of others who understood. Hmm. Wow. Well, anything else about this book that, I mean, we could obviously talk about this for a long time, but is there anything else that we you think is really pertinent that we should talk about as we kind of end our time? Uh, this is one line that I want to that I want to read. This is one of my favorite lines in the whole thing. This is in book twenty two when Achilles is, is coming after Hector. Um, let's see where to pick it up. I'm going to pick it up around line one hundred and. Um, Let's pick it up around line 100 and, and, and uh, 120. So but, but, no, here we go. So Hector begins sort of speaking uh, with himself. He's deliberately talking back at line 118, and we'll pick it up there. Uh, he sees Achilles uh, about to come after him. He's, he waited Achilles coming on gigantic in power. And then Hector says, no way out. If I slip inside the gates and walls, Polydamas will be the first to heap disgrace on me. He was the one who urged me to lead our Trojans back to Ilium just last night, the disastrous night Achilles rose in arms like a god. But did I give way? Not at all. And how much better it would have been. Now my army's ruined thanks to my own reckless pride. I would die of shame to face the men of Troy and the Trojan women trailing their long robes. Someone less of a man than I will say, our Hector, staking all on his own strength, he destroyed his army. So they were mutter. So now, better by far for me to stand up to Achilles, kill him, come home alive, or die at his hands in glory out before the walls. But wait, what if I put down my studded shield and heavy helmet, prop my spear on the rampart, and go forth just as I am to meet Achilles, noble Prince Achilles? Why, I could promise to give back Helen, yes, and all her treasures with her, all those riches Paris once hauled home to Troy in the hollow ships, and they were the cause of all our endless fighting. Yes, yes, return it all to the sons of Atreus now, to haul away, and then at the same time, divide the rest with all the Argives, all the city holds, and then I take an oath for the Trojan royal council that we will hide nothing, share and share alike the hordes our handsome citadel stores within its depths, and, and then he cuts himself off. He's dreaming, right? I could make it all stop. I could save my life. All I've got to do is, you know, whatever they want, all the terms, and he cuts himself off and says, why debate, my friend? Why thrash things out? I must not go and implore him. He'll show no mercy, no respect for me, my rights. He'll cut me down straight off, stripped of defenses like a woman once I have loosed the armor off my body. No way to parlay with that man. Not now. Not from behind some oak or rock to whisper like a boy and a young girl, lover's secrets a boy and girl might whisper to each other. Better to clash in battle now at once, see which fighters Zeus awards the glory. And then this is the bit. So he wavered, waiting there. But Achilles was closing on him now like the god of war. <laughs> it's wow. so good. It's so, it good. so good. And in that moment, Hector sees him, and he's like, crap. And he turns and runs. <laughs> yep. After all of this, like, psyching himself up, and I've got to fight him. He's probably going to kill me, but I'm going to die like a man. And then he sees 
don't forget, Hector has seen the God of War on the field of battle. And he sees Achilles coming, and it's like, nope. <laughs> He's more scared of Achilles. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. And it's interesting because there's, uh, on the next page, there's a similar wavering that occurs in Zeus, mm. who's wondering, should he save Achille uh, Hector or not? And right. Athena's like, and, and this goes back to the discussion about the fates, because Athena's like, hey, why are you even thinking about this when his his fate has been long settled. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. He's like, listen, you cannot right, but but it's it's it's, change it. it's Pietas that and to use a later ages word that is moving Zeus's heart in that moment. And that's that's yep. a nice connection to to Dante uh, if you're teaching both of those texts. This this is I mean, I think my final word of advice about this, if you're thinking about, you know, teaching this to a text to people, um, is you know, all these ideas and all these things are great, but don't forget to get them in the poem. Read the poem out loud so they can hear some of the glory of what's going on. There's a reason this is the most famous poem in the world. <laughs> right. And that's how it was. That's how people encountered the work for so long was through right. the spoken word. And that's, that's also right. why, you know, you read um, like Breaker of Horses, right? Hector is always called mm -hmm. Breaker of Horses. And it's because they had to memorize all this material. And so giving them certain epithets helps uh, the helps that process. So, yes, you absolutely need to have the students be reading that aloud. Or, or even if you're just reading it with a group of friends or something, you have to you have to have times where you're reading it aloud because that's 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 how the text was meant to be encountered. Yeah, that's right. Well, very good. This was an awesome conversation, and uh, what a great book. I, we could probably do multiple episodes on this, but I think if for our own time, it's probably better that we that we just do the one. Um, so we always like to end the show with an in, a segment called End Notes, where we talk about maybe an, an extra work or something people could look into if they're interested in exploring a little more. So, Junius, what, what is your uh, offering for End Notes? My suggestion is going to be a bit of an unusual. Well, I have two. So, so first of all, I, you've heard me mention Hesiod a couple of times. It's H E S I O D, and um, I would look at Hesiod's works and days in the Agony. There, it's not a, it's not long. The two texts together, and it's the only other thing we have from this period in Greek literature, and um, it's really quite good, and it makes a really wonderful counterpoint to Homer's perspective on these. And then the other thing I would say, we're going we're gonna to scoot way over to the other end of, of the um, ancient world and go to Statius and his poem, The Thebaid, which is about the war before the walls of Thebes, which the fathers of these heroes in the Trojan War fought. And um, that epic poem, which was written in Latin, is so good. It's a, it's a shame no one gets to read it anymore because we've got to do the Aeneid, and you can't not do the Aeneid. The Aeneid is the greatest Roman epic, but the Theban is, is just a little lower than the Aeneid, mm. and um, absolutely astounding. Um, and so I, I recommend looking at that both for its own inherent glories, but also for some context on what, what the greatness was of the previous generation that Nestor is comparing these men to. Awesome, awesome. So for me, I'm, I'm going to go a completely different direction with this. Um, I, gosh, it was probably 10 years ago now, saw a concert at Randolph College in Lynchburg, Virginia. Their classics department had this guy named Joe Goodkin come in. And I think if I remember correctly that Joe Goodkin maybe was a classics major, 
but he was also he's also a musician and he does folk music and he he has sort of folk operas based on the odyssey and the iliad so we saw him do the one on the odyssey but the blues of achilles is what he calls the album about the iliad and so it's really cool um i think he does a lot with different characters you know each song kind of is is the perspective of characters as events are unfolding and so um for example hector's wife has a song which is really heartbreaking you know and and so it's it's just a great listen so if you read the book or if you're familiar enough with the story it's something you can jump into and it's really accessible but it's really beautiful and the music is really good so i'm I, it's it's probably the nerdiest concert i've ever been to but i <laughs> i uh, make no apologies for it because i think it was awesome so yeah so the Blues of Achilles by Joe Goodkin. That's great. Well, listeners, thank you for joining us as we explore the Iliad. We will be back next month as we do The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Uh, and in the meantime, keep reading. <laughs>